verse 15. I'll read this in its entirety and then we'll sort of go work our way through it. Paul began this section with thanksgiving. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, so Paul um, began in, in, in his letter to Timothy, um, urging him to stay on at Ephesus to command those who, certain persons who are teaching heterodox, who are teaching other doctrines, to command them to stop this. He has a brief excursus on the law. Now, we can't understand the law without the gospel, so he has a brief excursus on the gospel before returning in verse 18 to his original charge. So, you know, this is how preachers work, right? I mean, we, 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 we start talking about one thing, and then all of a sudden we're talking about something else. Um, but these two excursuses are important for the rest of the letter. And so we spent um, really two weeks talking about the law and, um, and the importance of understanding the gospel for us to really understand the law. So um, we're going to pick up today. We talked about verses 12 through 14 and how... Paul was a persecutor, a blasphemer of the church, but he received mercy. We talked about the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is relief from the judgment. Grace is that favor that we receive. That's a sort of the negative and the not what you deserve. And grace is what you don't deserve, right? Uh, you don't deserve the favor of God. Um, you do deserve his judgment. We don't get the judgment. We get the favor. So uh, that, that was the um, uh, mercy and grace from, from uh, verses 12 and 14. So now we come to this in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And this is a repeated refrain in, in uh, Timothy. He says it five times, three times in this letter, um, once in his second letter, and once in Titus. Um, so it, it's an important statement. Why do you think that he says this? Why do you think he has to say, what I'm about to tell you is trustworthy? What, what, what's somebody trying to do when they usually preface their statement by saying that? What was that? Contradict lies? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... 
Right, right. Yeah, so this is like, you know, this is the truth. And then you tell them what it is, you know. This is a, it's, it's just a statement to kind of bolster what you're about to say. But also, it's probable, we don't know for sure, but this could be little statements, little creeds that are well known to Christians. They may be a part of a hymn, perhaps they're a part of a catechism. Um, some statement like Jesus is Lord. We know Jesus is Lord became a kind of catch-all phrase to confess the faith, right? When somebody says Jesus is Lord, it's like they're making a profession of faith. So here he makes a statement uh, that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So that's the statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, why is it important for us to define what Christ's mission was? And are there other ways throughout history that people have said Christ Jesus came into the world to be a good example, example, right? This is liberalism. Christ Jesus came into the world not to save sinners because why? Why Why was that unpopular and still is? Do you like to be told you're a sinner? What? Yeah, we don't like that. Um, And so, you know, it's important for us to have these kinds of statements that clearly define what was the mission of Jesus? What did he come to do? Did he come to just be a good teacher to open up the law, really how it should be, you know, just to set an example for how we should live? Um, Those are good. You know, Jesus is an example. He did open up the law for us, but that's not why he came. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, previously we talked about um, and, and John had pointed out this is not Paul is not making an excuse that because he was ignorant, it's OK the way that he acted. So. You could put it as a logical syllogism like, okay, well, uh, if you act in ignorance, then you can receive mercy because you didn't know. So the the goal would be to be ignorant, right? I don't want to know so that I can receive mercy. But that's not, we can't use it as an excuse just in the same way that Jesus called, he says, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. Well, you could turn that on its head and say, why? I don't want to be righteous then, right? I want to be a sinner so that I can be saved, right? This is where Luther's sin boldly. Have you heard that statement from Luther? Sin boldly because uh, what, what is the mission of Christ? What did he come to do? Save sinners. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a faithful it's a trustworthy, a des- a the reason that Jesus came to the world and that came into the world is talking about his incarnation. The reason that he was made man was so that he could come and save sinners. But then he adds a sort of stunning thing of whom I am the foremost. Is this just false humility? 
Is this like, I mean, we do this, right? I, I'm the worst, you know. But do we really, I mean, do we really think we're the worst? Or is it kind of a way to almost puff yourself up? What's Paul doing here? Is this real humility? True repentance, yeah. And what do you think led Paul to be able to make that assertion? How, how can he say that in real humility? And I, yeah. That's what he says before. I was a blasphemer. I was, and, you know, in other places he comes at it differently, right? He doesn't, remember, he's talking to Timothy, his protege, but how does he... How does he in Philippians talk about his pedigree as a Hebrew? It's all garbage, but but in terms that they would accept, it was it was the height, right? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zeal as to the law, blameless. That's not how he comes across here, right? He he comes across as everything that was a part of my law keeping is a blasphemer persecutor and insolent opponent right so that's the trash part of his philippians but he's what what he's doing is how he's able to come to this position of real godly humility is he has seen Christ right he has come in contact with Christ he has realized his law keeping was not in keeping with the gospel because he could never actually do it right the only way that you could say you're blameless as to the law is that floor right you you didn't commit adultery right you didn't murder but you actually hate you they're seething with hate and anger but they're on the outside well they're not murdering so you could, you can be blameless according to the law but when you see Christ when Paul comes in contact with somebody who's actually righteous well then he's the foremost i mean he's the he, he's the worst sinner when you when you compare yourself with Christ then we all none of us measure up and we're all the worst of sinners yeah Yes. Yeah, and, and I'm going to draw that out because the word foremost is protos. What we get first from proto, the prototypical, right? The first, he's the foremost, he's the prototype of what it looks like for God to show mercy to a sinner, right? He is the one who gets to be an example for all of us. So um, this statement that is trustworthy flows directly into verse 16. 
I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what's he saying there? What's he drawing our attention to? Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, and by the way, that I am is present, ongoing tense. Paul's not saying, I was the chief of sinners. I am still, today, the foremost sinner. I am the prototypical sinner. That's What's he doing there? What's Jesus doing in Paul? Joy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you, uh, what does this do for you if you see an example of God's mercy in somebody else and he's saying, I'm the worst? What does it do for you? That gives you hope, right? It affirms that you can find that same mercy and immense patience. And that's that word that's translated all throughout the Old Testament as slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He's patient. He wishes that no man would perish. He's waiting, slow to bring about the end of the age so that Everyone has a chance to repent and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And so he, Paul is using himself as an example. He says, Christ, um, Christ's perfect patience is displayed in me as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's for all of us. We read and we think, okay, if this guy who was a murderer... And a blasphemer, he condoned the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament. He's just sitting there as a witness. That's what it is to stand there as a witness. He's standing in judgment against Stephen while they stone him. And then he goes on a rampage and starts killing Christians and dragging them off to prison. And it's not until God gets a hold of him that he's changed. But before that time, he's, he's a bad dude. He's somebody that Ananias, who once Paul does meet Jesus, says, I know about this guy. This guy is killing people. I don't want to go to him. Let him suffer. Let him be blind. You know, and that's the attitude many of us would have had too. That kind of person, God reserved to show his mercy in, For our sake, as an example, so that we see if God can save him, what about me? Of course he can save me. Let's look at... Yeah. Yeah, we are displays of Christ's mercy, right? And, uh, you know, you don't want that to turn out to be kind of like the unforgiving servant where the, the, the master forgives him and then he goes and chokes his other friend for the dollar, you know. 
We don't want to be the one who has received all that immense patience and not be patient with others. God has been patient with you. How can you not be patient with one another? Right? So, yeah, John's drawing our attention to your life is always a display for others as an example of what Christ has done in you. So we're supposed to be kind of like the Holy Spirit, self-defacing, right? It's not me, it's Christ. It's not me, it's Christ. It's not me, it's Christ. That's where we're, our life is always pointing to, right? It's, it's not me, it's Christ. I think that he's setting up a contrast between those who don't understand the gospel. They want to be teachers of the law, and they're doing it within the church. They don't understand the gospel. Paul did all that, right? He taught he was a law teacher. He was what they wanted to do, but he realizes it ends only in religious moralism. And so he's contrasting that with the gospel, what God has done for him, you know, overflowing in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he, is, he wants to set a contrast for Timothy, who's facing this opposition. They're in his church. They're teaching these things. He needs to be uh, uh, affirmed in the gospel before he moves on in verse do. So I think he's setting a contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why James says, not many of you should be teachers, right? Because you are going to be under greater strictness when it comes to the judgment of God for the things that you say. So um, beware trying to sit in the seat of Moses and teach the law, especially when you don't understand the gospel and you haven't been confronted with it like I have. But there's an interesting um, parallel In Paul's letter to the Romans, if you turn with me and look at Romans chapter 9, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but what he's he's outlining is he's trying to uh, help the Romans understand election, which is not an easy concept to convey, right? It's it's challenging for us to to get ourselves, let alone what are we to make of the fact that Israel seems to have missed the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for the one that they were supposed to be, you know, celebrating when he came, and it was supposed to usher in this time of restoration. And now Paul's saying, you guys missed it. You who had the oracles and the covenants and the law, 
you missed the only Christ who could save you from your sin. But he gets to this section in Romans 9, and he's contrasting Pharaoh with the people of God, and he says this in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience, that's the same word, it's immense patience, much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So, What's Paul doing there? What's, what is, uh, how does that similar to what he's doing with Timothy? What is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is like Paul. He's an example. But what's the example of? Still God's patience, but not mercy. His wrath, yeah. So we, there are two types of people. <laughs> Both of them are examples. One is of God's wrath, and one of His mercy. Now, the vessels of grace... The vessels of mercy, um, the example that God is making with the vessels of wrath is for their sake. Why would that be? Why is it that um, he can say in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of grace? So he has, with immense patience, suffered for to allow, let's say, vessels of wrath for the sake of vessels of mercy? Why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you really know mercy without seeing the judgment of God? If you don't understand that you're a sinner, that you're God's judgment, do you need a savior? No, you don't need a Savior. It's only when you recognize your lost condition, how hopeless it is, that you realize the wrath of God. You understand you are under judgment because you are a sinner. You personally have broken God's law, and you deserve His wrath. When you come to that realization, mercy is amazing, right? Grace is astounding, so that you can rejoice in those conditions because you know what you deserved. You know where you should be. And you recognize that I'm not there. I'm over here. I, and so God has, with immense patience, demonstrated, um, has endured these vessels of wrath just so that you can see His mercy and how great it is. And that's, what Paul, that's basically what Paul's saying too. Yeah, John. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's part of his broader argument in that in that chapter. And I just wanted to draw our attention to that God is patient in that. All of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because uh, anyone who is um, is like Timothy or Paul should have the same attitude as him, right? Recognizing that I, I am foremost of sinner, right? And I have experienced that mercy of God. That way I can be an example to you all, not of my righteousness according to the law, but of my having received mercy. That's what I'm an example of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And we know that this is a, a contrast that he's saying that is concerns the gospel versus just these law teachers. Because look at verse 17. What does he do? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what does his statement from verse 12 to verse 16 cause him to do? Praise God. He erupts in doxology and he can't help it, right? I mean, this is at the end of chapter 9 of Romans too. You know, he's, he's talking about the, the love of Christ that you can't be separated from. And he can't help in the midst of that but just stop and praise God for it. And so he just, after recounting the gospel that God has made him a vessel of mercy, he erupts in praise. And his praise is very theologically rich, right? Which should inform the way that we praise God. Why do we praise God? Why do we praise God? And he's... He's so good to us, but can you really praise God if you don't understand verses 12 through 16? Do you think these law teachers are able to erupt in doxology? Oh, what, are, what, what characterizes the false teaching? Pride and division, right? They're constantly arguing over genealogy, but they're content. They've got a bone to pick with everybody about this little minutia of the law, right? No, you're wrong. It's Rabbi this guy, you know, we're going to follow. Yeah, yeah, the Puritans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
the uh, uh, Devil's Dictionary, Ambrose Bierce. He uh, it's wonderful 19th century Devil's Dictionary. He, his definition of a Puritan is that somebody somewhere um, the 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 anxiety that somebody somewhere might be happy. Uh, terribly wrong uh, conclusion about a Puritan, but right, it's kind of stuck with us, right? That that the Puritan is somebody who doesn't want anyone to smile or be happy. Now that's a caricature. They were very happy people, but um, I'm not sure exactly how we started talking about Puritans. <laughs> um, so he he's able because he understands the mercy of God to praise God. If you don't know your sin, you don't know you need a Savior, you can't praise God, right? You, it's impossible because you don't need God. If you don't recognize that you need God, you can't praise God. So this argument that Paul is making flows naturally right to doxology. It's the only place to go. And that should be for all of us as we are studying and we learn of the perfections of God should just erupt in praise. It's, it's doxology. But we learn something about God. Um, he is the king of the ages. Um, why, would, why would Paul put it like that? King of the ages. What are all kings bound by? Time. All kings die. And they go the way of their fathers. Not this king. He lasts forever. He is the king of the ages. He's king from all of eternity. And he will continue to be king long after. So he is the king of the ages. He's immortal. Now, um, and this also places a distinction between God and us. Right? We are bound by time. We are enmeshed in time. But God is not. God is outside of time. He is the king of the ages in that sense that he is above and in and through and beyond time. Right? He is not bound by that at all. It's not time to him is everything is present. Everything is present to God. At all, all time is present with him. It, it hurts my head to think about it, right? Because I, I am linear, and I had a, a beginning, and I will have an end. But God is not that way. He is eternal and exists outside of time. And so all of time is present to him at that moment. Um, and so uh, this is different than, this is what's called classical theism, which has come under heavy attack in our in our time, we don't necessarily want a God who is different than us. We keep trying to define God so that He's a little bit softer, He's a little bit kinder, and He's a little bit more approachable, right? We've been doing this. We've been coming up with ways to make God more like us since Adam and Eve. This is not new, but we do this in uh, what's called social Trinitarianism. We want to make God have passions. We want him to feel like we do. We want him to change like we do. Um, we don't want him to be so different from us that we can't come and relate to him. And so, um, but you see, that does 
great damage not only to the gospel, but to the doctrine of the incarnation. How does God come and relate to us? Well, through the person of Jesus Christ. He takes on flesh, right? And He becomes, in a, in, in, uh, in a sense that's beyond me, God and man in one person. God who is not bound by time, now bound by time. Right? Jesus is bound by time. He, he can't be in Jesus, the, in his body, he is at a specific moment. Right? And he continues forever. So though his body is eternal, he's at one location. So how does God relate to us? Well, he relates to us in Jesus. Right? He who understands who we are and operates as a high priest on our behalf. So we don't need to make... We don't need to make God subject to time or change or, or, uh, or emotions like passions. It sounds bad that God wouldn't have passions, but God is a simple being. He doesn't have parts. So if passions involve change, and God is changeless, He never changes. So if you have a God who changes, then you don't have the God of Scripture for one but you also have a God that has limitations, weaknesses. This is the God of open theism, or what's called process theology. So he's making a confession that God is eternal. He's outside of our time. He's immortal. He cannot be destroyed. He's invisible. We can't see him. And he's the only God. Right? He's not in Ephesus. The pantheon is worshipped, you know. You have Artemis, who is the fertility god. She is, or, or Janus, as the Romans called her. And she is, um, you know, uh, worshipped. She has a huge, one of the biggest temples in Ephesus that's made of complete marble. And uh, Paul runs into a lot of trouble because what happens when the church comes into Ephesus to the idol business? Do you remember that? What happens? They run out of business, right? Then nobody's buying their idols anymore. And so uh, the, the, metal, the metal workers, they get together and they say, this is, the Christian church is bad for business. We got to get these guys out of here. We're not going to have, how are we going to continue to make idols? And, uh, and so that's, that shows not just how entrenched idol worship was, but how effective the gospel was, right? At eradicating that sin. So he's the only God in distinction to those who um, would worship multiple gods. To be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So then it's like he just woke up from his uh, rabbit trail. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, now I remember what I was telling you. And then he comes back to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you. And you might be thinking, what charge? I mean, what are you talking about, Paul? It's kind of like breaking up. You're not making sense. So we have to go back to verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. So he's returning to that thought. This charge, the content of which is to say, you cannot teach this. That charge I've entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 
Now, why, does you, why do you think when returning to what he wanted to tell him, he uses, he explains it like that? Timothy, my child. Why does he say it like that? And then encourage him with these prophecies previously made about you. Why would he say Timothy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what do you need when you've got a difficult task? You need some encouragement. You need to be encouraged that you can do this. I, you have the backing of me. I am your father in the faith. And I've taught you. You know what to do. Timothy just being reminded that Paul is his father, that he's a, a son to Paul shows him the importance of the relationship, and then he points him back to his ordination. You know, this is like, remember what people spoke about you. Perhaps Timothy was a gifted young man, and his ordination he showed exceptional skill, and so prophecies were made concerning him. Maybe he was charged to remain faithful, something like that. Like, when I was ordained, and my pastor gave me a charge, right, to remain faithful and to shepherd the sheep. All of those things that Timothy is being reminded of. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember what God set you to do. This charge is difficult. You have to go to these people. You've got to tell them to be silent. And that's not going to be easy. You're going to need the encouragement that comes from the relationship with Paul and your previous ordination so that you can wage the good warfare. Why do you think Paul uses the language of warfare to describe the faith? Nobody's ever felt... Yeah. Have you felt that in your own Christian life? Have you felt that it's a fight? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fight. I mean, and you've got to have weapons, and you need to be armed, and you need to be... You need to acknowledge that you have a real enemy who doesn't want you to succeed. So Paul regularly uses the language of a soldier or battle or fighting to describe the Christian life and the faith. And that's important because it is. And we do need to be to be armed and ready to wage that good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. That's an interesting statement. What do you think he means by holding faith and good conscience? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we have an internal and an external battle. You know, we're waging war against not only our own flesh and our own desires, our own sinful tendencies, which arise constantly, but we're also facing enemies without, right? This is the the classic threefold distinction that the Puritans loved. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Those are our enemies. We, We have an internal enemy. But I think also Paul is talking about the uh, making an allusion back to the teachers of the law right they they don't have um orthodoxy and orthopraxy does anybody remember what orthopraxy is 
Right practice. Good job. The Latin, the Latin school teacher over there. <laughs> uh, yeah, right practice, right? So you have to have right doctrine. But if you just have right doctrine and you don't live it out, what does James call that? Double-minded man, dead. Dead faith. That's not living alive faith. Faith that is alive works. It does something. It works through love. And so Paul says these two things got to be held together. You have to have faith, and by faith he means the faith, right? Uh, given to the apostles. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to have that, and you've got to have a good conscience that you're living that faith out, that you're actually loving God and loving your neighbor. And some people have rejected that, and they've made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow, that's quite the statement. What are you talking about, Paul? What do you think he's talking about? First, how did they get into that position? What's that? Excommunication. Excommunication. Why do you think that? They were probably uh, spreading some kind of uh, false doctrine, even after having been corrected. Yeah, yeah. So they've, they've been corrected by Paul. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5. I want to look at a case that Paul deals with, and he gives us a little bit of information about discipline within the church. Now, discipline within the church is not a real popular subject, as you can imagine. We don't like discipline in general, right? People don't like to discipline their children. We definitely do not want to receive discipline. And so it's one of those doctrines. The Reformed Church said you're not a true church unless you have discipline. There are three marks of a church, right? The, the preaching of the word, the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and discipline. And uh, I know that's a lot of people because how does church discipline in Joel Osteen's church of 20,000? Joel Osteen has never met most of the people in his church. Now, I'm not saying you can't do it in a large church, but it becomes increasingly difficult. I mean, 20,000 people, you've got to have, I mean, you know, thousands of elders to, to manage that. So uh, you can kind of sense that I'm not a big fan of the mega church. It's not a workable model, right? We need to be breaking off into smaller churches with their individual pastors to shepherd individual people, right? Um, one, one reason is discipline. It can't can't be done but what's the purpose of discipline let's read first corinthians 5 now this case is is a case of sexual immorality but um, we can extrapolate out on any sin that is dealt with in the life of the church paul says it is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, what do we notice is going on here? What's Paul saying? What's he encouraging the Corinthian church to do? Discipline. What is it for? To cleanse the church and the individual. All right, so it functions in a couple of very important things. One is a huge public reminder, don't do this. Right? It restrains sin within the people of God. You say, you are to take this person and cast him out. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Don't let him continue to come. And this is for the purpose of showing the church holiness is important. Right? You can't have this kind of sin within your midst. Now, we know from the second letter that this man repents. Right? He doesn't know. He's sort of reveling in his freedom. So he's married his, his uh, stepmom. Not sure what led him to that position. But he's reveling in his freedom in Christ. He thinks he's okay. Everything's wonderful. And the gospel is great. I've got mercy and grace. I don't have to worry about sin anymore. Oh, this is wrong. I'm not supposed to do this. He actually repents and... Paul has to tell the Corinthians, hey, it's time to bring him back in. Let him back. He's repentant. So what's the purpose of discipline? The second purpose is to restore sinners. It's never to be vindictive, right? Just because, you know, we want us four no more. That's not the purpose of discipline. The purpose of discipline is because we actually love that brother. We don't want him to continue in his sin. We want to see him restored in his relationship with Christ. And so, he delivers him over to Satan. Now, what do you think that means? What does it mean to deliver somebody to Satan? What does that even look like? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, it sort of goes to this distinction between the church, God, those are people of God. They have been called by God and brought into the church is an assembly, right, of the people of God. Outside of the assembly, where are you? Well, you're in Satan's terrain, right? You're in Satan's domain. Paul says, I was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1. We know that when we excommunicate somebody, we are deliver- they are being taken out of the assembly of God, of God, the domain of And that is for the purpose of restoration, but it's, it's a real, that's a real scary thing. No, it doesn't mean to shun. Because well, how do you treat an unbeliever? <laughs> Do you shun them? No, you love them. And you minister the gospel to them. You care for them. Shunning is, you know, uh, shunning is for the purpose of somebody who is 
claiming to be a Christian within your assembly and is living like an idolater or a sexually immoral person. Because Paul, um, in continuing down, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So what the person that we shun is the person who doesn't receive discipline. They say, no, I disagree. I'm going to this church down the road. And I'm going to continue to say I'm a Christian and nothing's wrong. Don't have anything to do with that person. Don't talk to them. Right. Then suddenly the entire church is partaking in garbage, and now the church has no standard of holiness. Right. To not associate sometimes might seem harsh, but it's actually preservation of the yeah. holiness of the yeah. church Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who doesn't have, that's, what, that's why these two men are singled out. They are not living like Christians. And Paul says, these are cut off from your community. Don't be like them. Don't do stuff with them. Right, because bad company corrupts good morals. Then you begin to think, oh, they, well, John's a Christian, you know. He says, he says, I'm a believer. Yeah, I believe in Christ and stuff. He's got the faith, but his life is a wreck, and he's in sexual morality, he's in idolatry, and you begin to associate with him, and you think that's okay for you as well, right? So this is why within the church there is the wisdom to say. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to associate with that person, right? So um, that's what Paul is saying um, when it relates to excommunication. We, we don't treat them like a brother in Christ, but we treat them like somebody who needs the gospel. So that means we love them and we come alongside them and we are friends with them and we want opportunities to speak to them about Jesus. Hillary. Okay. Yeah. No. Sure. Yeah. You're right. We're talk- okay, so what, what I'm trying to say is that you would, should make a distinction between somebody who claims to be a Christian and is not living like it. Be weary of them. I'm not, I, 
I probably shouldn't have used the word shunning because it's not a great word. It's not scriptural. But don't associate with them. That's what Paul says. Don't associate with people who are sexually immoral, who are idolaters, who are claiming to be Christians. Now, they should be, based on the leadership of a church, excommunicated if they continue to do that. Any sin that goes unchecked in the life of an individual should be have steps in our discipline. Uh, is we would go to a person and say, look, you, you are claiming to be a Christian. You can't live like this. That's admonishing them. You need to conform your life to the pattern that we find in Scripture. And if they refuse, they don't repent, then they would be suspended from the table. And if we continue to work with them and we say, you still can't live like that, you can't live with your girlfriend, you're not married, you can't do that, you're going to continue to be suspended to the table for the next six months. If you don't repent, you're going to be excommunicated. That's the process we take in, in the PCA to exercise discipline. And that's for any sin. Any sin that is in the life of an individual that keeps them from Christ. Yeah. Right. And then those are the types of people who are still professing Christ and loving the same. Yeah. But if that person just was totally unaware, kind of wasn't professing Christ and walked away, then in which you still love that person, you still care yeah. about that person, yeah. and you didn't show the gospel to them because they obviously used them. Right. Yeah. Hillary, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. They made shipwreck of their faith. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's probably, it, it's, uh, their profession is not matching their life, I'm guessing, because he makes these statements of holding faith and good conscience. Okay, so, so they excommunicated somebody, mm-hmm. and um, where do you go Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that you shun anybody. I don't think it means that at all. Yeah. It means that if their problem, if they're coming in and sowing division, stop listening to them. Yeah. If they're a leader in the church, blow them out. They yeah. Don't, they don't need. They need to not be in that position. Right. Yep. You know. But it's not. I don't think it has to do with relating to people as, as fellow sinners. It has to do with the relationship. And there is a responsibility. If there's leaders that are doing that, 
you need to stop listening to them. Mm-hmm. If they just read in the scriptures, you obviously don't miss Joe. Don't go with them. Yeah. That doesn't mean you join them. But don't go there. Mm-hmm. Don't Oh, no, no, no. Excommunication does not mean we kicked them out of the service. Any, any sinner, unbeliever, anybody can come and, and, and be... A, they probably won't, yes. But um, that's not what excommunication... Right. That's true. Yep. He said that when they're in the church, they will be the words of Jesus Christ. Yeah. They're in the flesh teaching. And it's just like yeah. They potentially could be right here. Yeah. Yep. And those are, those are the things that we have cut off. Yep. Yeah. I threw the word cut off in there. Sorry, I stole it. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. The yep. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, probably Paul was talking about um, the Lord's Supper when he says, eat with them. So, you know, he, he's not, because what was the complaint that they made about Jesus? He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. They're known sinners, right? Now, there, a lot of them became Christians and followed Christ and their life changed, but still they were known by that sin and he associated with them. He ate with them. But what we're talking about is Lord's Supper, Right? We're talking about communion together. Don't eat the Lord's Supper with somebody who's saying he's a Christian, but is not living like it. That's what excommunication is. You're cut off from the table. You may not commune with Christ. Excommunicated, right? You are not communicating with Christ. And that's for a time so that you will learn and then you will come back to Christ. That's what the point of discipline is, yeah. Uh, I would say that there are probably cases such as sexual abuse or spousal abuse where we might tell somebody, look, if you want to be in worship, we don't want to prohibit you, but you may not come here because you make your victims uncomfortable. So we might have a pastoral conversation, but we would never you know, just say, if you've been excommunicated, you can never come back to this. Right. Yeah. Almost every time I've been a part of excommunication, that person is not even there when you do it. When you read a letter, they don't they're not anywhere near. They don't want to be there. You know, Um, either they have. Yeah, they're they're They've digging their heels in in their sin. So, um, I mean, you pray for them. And when you see them, you call them back to repentance. But we got to wrap up for worship. So um, we'll we'll uh, we'll take some questions about this next time. We'll talk a little bit more. I want to make sure nobody's confused. Um, and Hillary, I'd love to talk with you if you'd like to talk about it. Um, but yeah. I, I excommunicated myself in 2010. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Sure. Well, we'll talk more. Okay. <laughs>